0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm happy to have you listening and downloading and joining me this week. And in this episode, I sit down with fellow physical therapist, Dr. Jason year and we talk about communication. We talk about argumentation and why it's important for physical therapy. Well, it's important for everyone, really, but how to argue, how to debate, how to communicate with your colleagues in a more positive way. As I'm sure a lot of people see on social media, things can get really negative really fast, and it gets old and tired and boring. So today, Jason takes us through Uh, some of his best tips on how to be able to have these conversations in a way that's meaningful, in a way that pushes the profession forward, but not in a way that makes you a jerk online. So we talk about the human susceptibility to confirmation bias. We all have it. How online communication differs from in-person communication, which we can all agree that is huge. Common assumptions within arguments, what is being said and what is not being said, how argumentation, like I said, will progress the physical therapy profession, um, and how when when reasoning online doesn't work so well. It works better in group situations where we can all kind of sit around and look at each other and reason, but sometimes it just doesn't work when you're online, and So what can we as physical therapists do to make our online, especially our online communications, but communications in general, be more helpful to people reading it? Because, you know, people read these who maybe aren't in the physical therapy world. And I know because I have patients who have said to me, wow, sometimes I read some uh, debates, if you will, on Twitter or on Facebook, and they can't believe the way that colleagues speak to each other. And that's not something that, uh, as a person in the physical therapy profession, I want to hear from my patients. You know, not cool. So we talk about kind of before you start to reason with someone, what does Jason recommend you do? And it's really good. Consider the biases of others before engaging in an argument. And even more critical, consider your own biases, and so much more. So... A little bit more about Jason. He's a physical therapist working in the outpatient setting, aside from caring about dogs, movies, and music. He has a strong passion for his professional field. He's been uh, compelled to write about various topics within physical therapy to help nudge the profession forward in any small way he can. Recently, he's invested time exploring how our innate biases are influencing our reasoning abilities and preventing constructive communication. And if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, which all new website, so be sure to check it out. We kind of zhuzhed it up a little bit. Um, All the links for all of... The things that Jason and I talk about will be there, so one click will get you there. And one last thing before I get to the podcast is that I am going to be giving away two tickets to WebPT's Ascend event, which is at the end of November, the 29th and the 30th in Washington, D.C. So if you would like to attend for free, all you have to do is go onto social media, tag me at... On Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC, on Facebook, Karen Litzy Physical Therapist, my professional page, or even on Instagram at Karen Litzy. and tell me why you want to go to the event. What do you want to learn? Um, be sure to tag me, tag WebPT. And use the hashtag AscendEvent, and you can win a free ticket to the Ascend event in Washington, D.C. So make sure you try and get on that before August 31st, because I will be picking the winner on September 1st. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to today's great episode with Jason Year. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Happy to be here. Yeah, and so a little background on how we got connected. So Rich Severin sent me a message on Facebook and said, do you know Jason? And I said, I don't, I said, it sounds really familiar, but I don't think I've spoken to you or had any interaction online. And he said, well, you need to have him on your podcast. And so Rich put us together and then, and now here we are. And then you got the endorsement, well, from Kenny Veneer as well. So I'm a, they all said you're super smart, so that just puts a lot of pressure on you now for this interview.
1: Uh, great, hyping me up. I- <laughs>
0: <laughs> so today, like I said in the intro, today we're going to be talking about intraprofessional professional communication. Um, and from what I've seen over the past even year or so, especially on social media, is intra- pers- intra-professional communication seems to be crumbling here and there. I'm not going to say it's crumbling overall, but I think there's a lot of chips in the uh, in the concrete if you will. so where where's the problem? What's the problem?
1: Well that's a loaded question. Um, so I guess I want to backtrack a little bit and say it's not even so much a problem within our field. it's a problem in humanity in general. Um, as a species, we're pretty terrible at this especially when it comes to online formats. Um, I'm sure everybody has a horror story about some facebook conversation they were in or twitter um so i'm sure we're not alone there um but there's kind of a lot to unpack there so i mean i guess they can go back to if we're really gonna break it down um theories of why we reason in argumentation in general so um there's been a lot of good research coming out recently um especially by a guy named hugo mercier Like, um, I want to say it was 2011, he came out with this great paper about the argumentation theory. And basically in there, he kind of outlines – so everybody has this assumption when we reason that – and when we come to our beliefs that we'll kind of take a blank slate approach, we'll evaluate all the evidence out there, we'll kind of weigh it, and then come to a decision. Um, But in reality, in a lot of ways – and this isn't the only way this happens. I'm going to oversimplify, of course – But a lot of times we have these intuitive beliefs of something we just want to believe. And then after the fact, we'll come up with justifications for why that's true. So um, we're really biased in the way we come to our decisions. So with that, after we have those beliefs, um, a few things take hold. So when we own beliefs, we'll typically ascribe more value to them than beliefs we don't own. And because of that, Um, That kind of combines with confirmation bias, where we'll selectively pay attention to things which fit our narrative, right? And we're not doing this because we're trying to deceive ourselves or anything nefarious or anything, um, but it's just something that naturally happens. So we become very confident in our beliefs, when in reality, that's not a good representation of, you know, the real world. So we become very sure, very cocky, and then – Um, that just kind of perpetuates over time. So reasoning works really well in a group setting because a lot of these biases kind of cancel out and we're able to move closer to a representation of the truth. But a problem comes in, in online formats, especially with, you know, there's a lot of good that comes with being disconnected with people, but there's also a lot of bad in the sense that we tend to gravitate towards people who think like we do. So, that bias doesn't get canceled out if we're only interacting with people that view the world the same way we do so we're only sitting in these echo chambers listening to people who believe what we do and we come we become very sure of our beliefs and then we add on this tribal mentality to it as well so it kind of compounds all the problems we have when we just reason by ourselves um and then you know we have these groups of people who become very very sure of themselves And then they go to interact with other people who are just as sure of their beliefs. And it ends up being a nightmare.
0: Yes, it does. And I think it's compounded when you are in an online format versus in person. So I think a good example of that is at CSM in, where was CSM just last? Uh, San Antonio. So at CSM in, in San Antonio, they had a debate on dry needling, pros pro-dry-needling, con-dry-needling. And when you see these debates online, it's like people are ready to rip each other's hearts out for it, like Indiana Jones style. And then this in-person debate was civil. It was thoughtful. uh, Information was presented on both sides. And the people in the audience had a chance to evaluate given both sides. And it was really lovely and probably what a debate should be. But when it's online, it's just blows up into the big kind of shitstorm. I don't know how else to, to, to describe it, but what what are your thoughts on sort of that in person versus that not in person?
1: Right. And that, that makes a huge difference. So in person, um, you're able to see the human behind the argument. So you're able to attach that this isn't just some belief you're arguing with. This is the person who has good intentions, who is well-meaning, that just happens to have a different opinion than you. And so, when there's that human face on this, it's a lot easier to be civil. You're easily able to understand. There's more nuance to this than they're just a, a dumb idiot who doesn't see the world that I the way that I do, right? Um, and online, it becomes very easy to um, kind of pigeonhole people, you know, come up with um, some reason to hate them because they think differently than you. And it's not always that black and white. I'm not that extreme. But again, when you don't have the context of the human being in play, it becomes very easy to get polarized in a hurry.
0: Yeah, for sure. And oftentimes, and I think you touched on this on your article on physiological.com, is one of the, you sort of hit four different aspects of uh, interpersonal professional communication and argumentation and kind of where things can go wrong. So if we can kind of go through those a little bit so that people kind of understand uh, where we're coming from from this talk. And the first one was, someone, you put an idea out there into the world, someone disagrees with it, you take it as you're not a good clinician, you have not achieved successful outcomes, and you're not intelligent. Now, that's those are very big insults to a clinician. So is that what the person who wrote said critique meant, or is that what we kind of heard and internalized? And how can you, how can one break free of that thought virus, if you will, so that you can talk about the content and not the person?
1: Right. So there's an interesting paradox when having these conversations so it's really important, as I was just talking about, when you're discussing something with someone else to realize that they are a human being with emotions and beliefs and values. But for yourself internally, you have to be able to separate a critique from your self-identity, and you have to kind of remove emotion from the equation. Because um, in a lot of ways, you need to be able to separate when somebody says that something you're doing isn't accurate or is not um, you know, well-studied or well-proven, I should say, Um, It's not implying things that they're not saying. So in particular, as you hit on, a lot of people um, take these insults, um, I I shouldn't say insult take these arguments as an insult to their character or their intelligence or maybe even a reflection of their um, clinical abilities. And that's obviously a mistake. Um, That's not what is intended most of the time because you are so much more than one intervention, right? No one belief can completely encapsulate who you are as a person, much less, you know, a therapist. So um, you need to be able to kind of distinguish the argument you're having versus some of the implications that you think are there. Um, so that that's really important. Um, and unfortunately, we're not very good at that.
0: Well, I think as human beings, we're not good at that. I mean, I'm 100% guilty of that.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I'm not innocent either. Like, especially in a topic where I'm not well practiced in argument, um, I can easily have those knee-jerk emotional reactions, and it's just that is completely normal. That's a human emotion. Um, Nobody likes being told you're wrong. Nobody is going to be you know thankful and appreciative. Be like, oh, I'm glad you told me that. Thank, reevaluate how I'm doing this. No, everybody's going to be like, who's this jerk? Right?
0: Now, I think a lot of these heated debates, if you will, whether in person or online, a lot of them kind of start out on the wrong foot sometimes. So I think there's responsibility on both parts. We're talking, we were just talking kind of about the person on the receiving end. But oftentimes the person, the sender of the information, is maybe not starting out on such a great footing by the way they're wording things. You know the old saying, you catch more bees with honey?
1: Um, the tone you use has to be very specific. So if you come off in an extremely aggressive way, it's not going to end well. Um, and I'm, I'm going to even take this a step further. Um, take this back a little bit. Getting someone to change their mind in general is extremely difficult. Um, and the way you, if you're lucky enough to have it happen, it has to be done in a pretty specific way, right? So something to be said is that if someone is not willing to have their mind changed, There's literally nothing you can say to have them change their mind. Um, And so that's kind of the first criteria that has to be in place in the first place. Otherwise the conversation is just going to be spinning your wheels. Um, And then second, we have a huge problem in an online format because again of this, um, this context problem of not seeing the person as uh, an individual, just a belief, but also because there is this social element to this as well Um, when you're Discussing something in an online format like this, um, there is a huge risk for that person to kind of magnify these, these misinterpretations because they can see this as a public embarrassment. And then it can be viewed as somewhat of a weakness if they admit wrongdoing or that. Um, and sometimes there's even going to be some other motivation behind it, like their therapy clinic or their, their ideology is their, how they're basing their con ed, stuff like that. So there's a huge problem in the social sphere doing this online. And money. And money plays a role as well, yes.
0: Money, um, money, money. When you make money off of certain things and people call into question the uh, the ability of those things to do the things they say that they're doing, and money is in play, that makes all of a sudden a huge difference.
1: Absolutely. So even if you have those criteria in place where it's not going to be a social embarrassment situation and the person is willing to have their mind changed. So say you take them aside and you have this one-on-one conversation where you can add more context to to the situation. You can kind of um, humanize the conversation a little bit more. Um, I heard a quote. it, It went that all disagreements are founded in agreements. So at some level, there's going to be some base or some foundation where we have an agreement. And you want to start there. You want to establish some sort of rapport with the person you're talking with. Because people tend to deal better with people they like, right? This is very common sense, but it's it's been studied. It's called the halo effect, where if you have a a positive impression of somebody in one aspect, you're much more likely to have a positive um, opinion of them in another. So getting somebody to like you is very important and coming off as an aggressive jerk is not going to do that for you because the opposite is true. If you don't like someone, if there's something you have a negative impression of them in some way, good luck getting any um, positive response out of this. So starting off on a good tone is going to be important and finding the place you agree is a great place to uh, begin the conversation. So kind of start from there. And in reality, It's best if you don't come off as somewhat of a a lecturer and just some all-powerful, you know, person of knowledge.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: People don't typically take very kindly to that. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of treading carefully. Um, Some different ways um, can be used. So like using a Socratic method, just getting somebody to evaluate their thought process along the way and getting almost like this self-actualization or awareness of, maybe where they're wrong and kind of magnifying that aspect of it. Um, There are different ways to go about it. No one way is going to be perfect for everybody, but it's definitely has to be done in a way that doesn't come off as condescending or attacking. Because if you put someone on their heels right out of the get go, they're going to become very defensive and the message is not going to come through.
0: No, absolutely not. And like I said, I've sure I've have surely been on both sides of this. Um, probably in person and online. And now what I try and do is if someone presents something to me or says something to me online, instead of having that knee-jerk reaction, what I now do is I will sort of take a step away and I will read what they wrote probably hundreds of times because by that time the emotion has kind of run dry. And I feel like if you can allow the emotions to run dry, then the conversation will flow a little bit better. And oftentimes, I'll see, I'm like, you know something? You were right.
1: Oh, uh, Absolutely. Um, and you hit on a lot of good points there. And that—that that is actually one of the beauties of online interactions is that you don't have to engage right away, right? So you can use that strategy of taking a step back because... When it's a highly emotional topic and you're going to have those knee-jerk reactions, you can not always think rationally. I mean, again, I'm not immune to this. Just ask my wife anytime I'm irritated. I don't make sense at all. <laughs> I will make the worst arguments in the world, um, and nobody's immune to this. Um, so that that is a really good benefit there, and that strategy works well. Um, I mean, I'd recommend that to a lot of people, actually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what do you do? So let's say someone comes at you on social media. What strategies do you use?
1: Um, so it really depends. So it's funny. I write a lot about this, but I don't actually engage that much on public forums because I'm kind of nihilistic in a sense of how much I think it will matter. Because most people like hearing themselves talk and aren't really open to change. But if somebody is genuinely interested in getting closer to a better representation of the truth and they show signs that they're willing to have their opinion changed, I'll move to more kind of private forums just to avoid a lot of those, um, those um, you know, social issues that go along with it. Uh, and so a good place to start is going to be, one, figuring out the values of the person you're talking with and being able to frame your argument around what they're going to care about. Um, because if you make the best argument in the world, but it's something the person doesn't really value, it doesn't have any effect on their opinion. Um, so where was I going to go with this? Um, so everybody's heard of the straw man, where you take somebody's opinion and you kind of pick it apart and make a bad representation of it. You actually want to use the opposite approach, a steel man. You want to find the best elements of what that person believes and kind of repurpose it and present that back to them and ask for clarity and be like, is this what you meant to say? And then give them a chance to kind of expand upon that and make themselves, you know, um, clear is I will just ask someone typically right at the start of the conversation, what information would have to be provided to have them change their mind. And that can tell you a lot. So that tells you what kind of hierarchy this person has in their value structure for how they learn information. So does this person what on the scientific process can tell them? Particularly you know like randomized control trials and things like that. or is this person more of an experiential learner where seeing is believing and they won't have their opinion changed because they know what works right? Because so, they
0: know what works.
1: Yes, yes right And so understanding that about the person is really gonna dictate how I go from there. Yeah um, One is much easier than the other. If seeing is believing it's very difficult um, to have that conversation online. Um, because typically for that type of person, you need to put them in an environment where they're going to have their, um, expectations violated, where they're going to believe that one thing is going to happen after they do some intervention and then show them in a systematic way that, you know, this is not always the case and plant that seed of doubt. That's really hard to do online. Um, but other people, it just is being civil and being nice and, you know, again, kind of working with them to come to a collective realization not forcing an opinion on
0: them. Right, and it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but it kind of reminds me of, did you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. So on Sunday's episode, so for people, we're recording this on on a Monday, so this should not be a spoiler alert if you haven't seen this episode yet because this will have come out like a week or two ago. But it kind of reminds me of... Um, John Snow kind of describing the White Walkers so he describes them to Daenerys and he didn't have to physically show her like yes these White Walkers exist I mean he did show her those cave drawings but I mean I guess that's kind of it but she was kind of a little bit more on board but then they said the only way to get Cersei on board is to physically bring one to her and show her that these things exist. Otherwise, she just thinks that they were made up to frighten small children. And so <laughs> that's kind of the difference, right? Some people need that physical proof like Circe. And other people like Daenerys can go on kind of what will believe someone else's experience as truth. So you're a Circe or a Daenerys or somewhere in between, right?
1: It's all about knowing your audience. And uh, like... Who knows? Obviously, we haven't seen the episodes coming out yet, but who knows if um, Cersei will even believe it when she sees it. Like a lot of people, seeing they'll just dismiss it and justify it away, right? So even to some of those people, they're kind of lost in this conversation.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I guess we'll have to see Game of Thrones fans. We will have to see. I think that's the first time I ever like put a Game of Thrones reference into a podcast. But more often, I know it's amazing. What a show! Anyway, okay. I digress from Game of Thrones. So, all right. So we're talking about does the person want to change? Can we kind of find where they might be misinterpreting things and magnify that in a way that is positive?
1: Um, absolutely. Yeah, you want to be as charitable as possible in your interpretation of their beliefs um, and kind of highlight the positives they're doing and make sure you're being very complimented it. Because people, like, again, if they like you, if if they um, think you are interpreting them well and, and actually trying to get to their perspective, it's going to go a lot better for you.
0: And doesn't this kind of remind you of when we might see a patient for the first time and we're going through our initial eval and that we want to be showing those pink flags, which are those things that they're doing well and not always pointing out the things that they're not doing well, a la Louis Gifford's.
1: Yeah, it's it's all about the way you frame it. Exactly. You always want to focus on what you can do, not what you can't do, right? So exactly the same thing with your patients. Highlight the best of what they can do and just, you know, don't really focus on what they're not able to do at the moment, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I also love that you touched upon a few minutes ago is listening to the person and then saying back to them, so this is what I'm hearing you say, X, Y, Z, is is that correct? I do it every day with my patients. You know, it's a huge communication tool. It's part of motivational interviewing and, and shows that you're present and you're listening. So I think that's a great way. And you can do that online too because that can things can be mis- misconstrued online. It doesn't necessarily have to be person to person. So if someone says something to you, you can write back and say, so is this what you mean? Or if I hear you correctly, this is what you're saying. And they may look at it and be like, no, it's not what I'm saying at all. Because oftentimes... What we take in is not what the person's saying, like the game of telephone, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that, that was a big part of that article I wrote was just the um, misinterpretation on the receiver's end. So um, just making sure the, the message is clear on both ends, and that's going to help drive the conversation forward. Because if you try to have a conversation when you think you're both saying different things, it's not going to be productive.
0: Now, in that article, another thing that you touched upon was your mentor was wrong and their contribution to the field should be forgotten. So can you expand a little bit on what you mean by that?
1: Right. So in a lot of ways, we come from two different value systems in terms of how we learn, right? I talked about that a little bit earlier. So some people, um, they come from more of the apprenticeship model model. Where they come from certain ideologies, and their mentors came from that, and they are highly respected, and they they put them up on a pedestal, right? And not to say that their mentors weren't great people, great clinicians, had amazing outcomes, and were really intelligent. Um, but what they knew at the time is really, you know, you're never going to be able to separate yourself from the time you live. So right now, I'm fortunate in the fact that we know a lot more about human physiology and how psychology psychology affects um, our patients than they did, you know, just even a few decades ago, right? We have a lot better understanding of um, what our treatments, the specific effects, and then non-specific effects, how they're going to change our interactions. So just merely because of the time I live, I have a big advantage. And that's not saying that I'm smarter than your mentors or the people who founded your ideology. It's just that I'm more fortunate, Right. And so what they did can't be taken away from them. You know, they, they helped a lot of people in a lot of ways get great outcomes. And I'm not in any way or shape or form going to take away from that by saying, you know what, this principle that they believed in isn't really true, right? There's a lot of reasons why they had positive outcomes. Maybe their justification wasn't right. And so we can accept that without forgetting their legacy and forgetting a lot of the good they provided. They drove the profession forward with the best information they had at the time. Um, But it doesn't mean we need to hang on to those beliefs like, you know, they're they're sacred.
0: Yeah. and, And I think that's really important distinction is that it's not that the work they did was terrible. They did what they what they can do at the time, given the information that they had. And now with technology evolving, we just have more information. And that's a good thing because it only serves to help our patients and help us as we grow as clinicians.
1: As long as we're taking in the information, you know, from an unbiased perspective. Um, Otherwise, it can snowball like we talked about earlier.
0: Right. Absolutely. Okay. So another thing that you brought up in the article, which I think is very applicable to a lot of new graduates and fresh PTs, if you will, student PTs, is you join a practice, you join a clinic, you join a hospital, this is the way to practice. If you don't follow XYZ protocol, you're wrong. And you hear a lot from students and and fresh PTs who say, you know, I, I was at a clinic and they were doing something and it doesn't really align with what the current research shows. What do I do? I wanna keep my job, I wanna pass my clinical, How do I approach this situation? What's your advice on that?
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, So it's going to be a lot of the ways we talked about earlier in terms of changing beliefs. You don't want to be a jerk about it, right? You don't want to come in there cocky and condescending to everybody else. It's like, look how much I know compared to you. What you're doing is wrong, right? So you have to be kind of political about it. Um, Do what you believe in. Don't compromise your autonomy as a clinician just to conform, but at the same time, don't step on anybody else's toes, right? I practice in a facility where um, clinicians had very different perspectives and ideas than I did. Um, they were pretty much non-compatible. But if we ever had to co-treat for whatever reason, because it, you know it's a clinic, sometimes it does happen, you're not gonna go out of your way to completely change the plan of care and then step on your fellow clinicians' toes just because it doesn't fit your ideology. Again, you're going to find the good in what your other clinicians do and incorporate that without highlighting what you don't believe. Um, And just, if you can, set those other clinicians aside if they're open to having a conversation and just kind of get their perspective on why they do what they do. I wouldn't necessarily start out coming um, accusing or coming off as saying, well, did you know you should do this, right? I would much rather let them get their side of the story out and just at least try to understand their perspective, right? And a lot of times we're going to find we have a lot of the same inherent values. We just have different kind of information sources and ways of going about it.
0: And then when that comes to, and I think that's uh, kind of a great topic, um, because when it comes to patient care, let's say you treat with a certain in a certain way, and another therapist treats in a different way. And you're seeing the same patient, or let's say that patient was at was with one therapist, now they're with you. And you now have to treat this patient who has gotten a lot of information from another therapist that maybe is not the most current information. So forget about how do you talk to your colleague? How do you now talk to a patient who said, oh, this therapist, I saw them last year, and oh my God, they made me feel so much better. I mean, granted, they're back seeing you again, but um, may not be for the same thing. And they said that the reason I had knee pain is because my knee joint wasn't aligned. And so she went in and she aligned it for me. And that's why my knee feels better.
1: Right. So um, that's a a tough situation because you never want to discount the patient experience, right? You don't want to kind of piss them off right out of the gate, right? Um, And especially if they had a really positive experience, you don't want to kind of take that away from them. So I suppose it would depend on the severity of the the bad information they got. Um, And this goes along with arguments online. So even if there is someone who isn't willing to have their mind changed and it's in a public forum and everything's wrong that I talked about earlier, there's still reasons why you want to engage sometimes if there's a significant negative consequence um, potential there. So like, especially in our field where we're dealing with pain, we're dealing with psychosocial issues that could have long lasting effects. It's still good to intervene because if we don't, we can be a little bit complicit in it. And a lot of times you need to make it known for the the audience of the arguments as well, not necessarily the arguer, but that's a little tangent. But coming back to the clinical situation, right? So you never want to outright just tell the person they're wrong and that that's just not true. Again, you want to frame it in a different light. So if somebody comes up to me and tells me that their spine was misaligned, they had their clinician pop it back in place and they felt better, but then after the fact, they you know, they moved wrong and it popped back out, right? I'm going to kind of go at it from a perspective of, well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad that this worked for you. And this may be why, right? I'm going to talk about how you know, the spine's inherently stable and I'm going to kind of give them positive beliefs about it and then slowly educate them on why they may have had that positive response without necessarily needing it to pop back in place. Um, So it's kind of starting on the common ground, finding, you know, talking about their positive experience and what else they could have done that made it better and some positive strategies that they adopted after the fact with therapy and then highlight those and then kind of, you know, slowly over time talk about how why I do what I do Sometimes it's best not to just flat out debunk what that person believes and it, it always depends on the patient. Some come in and they're convinced this is how it works. They're just absolutely sure that the chiropractor they've been seeing for 10 years has kept their spine perfectly aligned. I'm not even going to have that conversation with that patient because I'm just going to make them not like me. <laughs> right? I'm much more focused on why I do it without stepping on their beliefs. Other patients willing to have that conversation, and if you get that sense, you can always go down that road. But it's it's usually best not to jump in headfirst on
0: that. But let's get getting back to communicating intra-professionally. Argumentation, necessary, not necessary.
1: (laughs) Absolutely necessary. So as we were talking about earlier, when it came to reasoning, um, people come to conclusions which don't in any way, shape, or form represent the truth when we reason alone. But when we reason in groups, we tend to do much better. And they've done studies on this in, like, predictive tournaments and um, things like that, where they'll show group reasoning always is going to outperform the individuals. Um, So it's absolutely essential for us to move the profession forward collectively. The problem becomes, again, when we have this rigidity in our beliefs and we're not open to different interpretations. We have different value systems and and we're just not even willing to hear the opposition. So absolutely essential. And everybody has these negative connotations about what an argument is. Um, Everybody views it as a shouting match, right? But that's not really the case, um, at least not in a professional sense of what it should be. Um, It should just be sharing of different information and values to help us gain greater perspective. Um, So in a sense, it's absolutely necessary.
0: And necessary to move us forward, to move us forward collectively as a cohesive profession versus, I think a lot of people see when all of this argument, arguments, or debates, if you will, online as splintering the profession apart versus bringing it together. So what kind of change needs to be made so that is not the perception?
1: Right. I I don't think it... Takes a lot of imagination to see how this affects us in areas outside of our profession, right? Um, we see it all the time in a lot of highly contentious ways. Um, so it's nothing that is specific to us. It's it's kind of human nature. Um, and then you throw in problems of being online, it, it just really magnifies it. Um, I wish I had a great answer for that. I don't know. I mean, all I know is that what I can control personally. So when I engage online. I do my best to be introspective and remove my emotion from the conversation. I try to maintain some semblance of flexibility in in what I think. That's all I can control, right? I can hope that the person I'm I'm engaging with feels the same. And if we all did that, it would be great, right? (laughs) Um, But that's asking a lot. So I'm not sure. All all I know is I can maintain my professionalism when I engage online and I'll do my best not to let emotions run wild. Nobody's perfect. It happens, especially on topics that mean a lot to us. Um, But if we check that at the door, um, we'll probably move forward in a lot of ways. So there's a difference between challenging ideas online and and trying to come to a, a better truth in that sense versus attacking individuals. So there's a large difference and in, in one can be seen as constructive and the other in no way, shape, or form can.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's great advice is kind of check your ego at the door and know that you can the only thing you can control in a situation is you and your response to that situation. You can't control what the other person's going to say. But if you keep control over over what you say or you write or you type on that keyboard, then I think That will go a long way to have some more productive arguments and productive debates within any profession.
1: Absolutely. And and especially in our field, like it's not like we're a bunch of snake oil salesmen, right? Nobody actually enters this field because they want to just make a ton of money. Everybody has this inherent value system where we get into it because we want to help others. So if we take a step back and understand that that is our goal collectively and everybody wants to get there, and we just have different ways of viewing the, the solution to that goal. So if we keep that in mind as we're arguing, we'll find we agree on a lot more than we disagree about. But we, we highlight that 1% so much and we become so hyper-focused, we lose sight of the big picture. So sometimes we need to take a step back, figure out what we agree on, and really focus on that for a little bit. And then go towards our differences in a constructive way.
0: Yeah. And I think on that note, I think it's a wonderful way to kind of end this conversation. Um, but I have one more question for you. And it's a question that I ask everyone. I probably should have told you this ahead of time. I apologize for not doing that. So I'm putting you on the spot. Um, so wh- when when did you graduate PT school? Please don't say it was like last year. <laughs> <laughs> graduated
1: in December of 2013.
0: 2013. All right. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um I don't feel quite as old now. Now, um, what advice, so knowing what you know now and where you are in your career and life, what advice would you give yourself as a new grad?
1: Okay. Um, probably be willing to take more chances. Um, I, As I talked about earlier, I don't engage a lot online. Um, and most of the time, who knows why, that's probably for a lot of reasons. Um, but I've just really started to recently get more engaged and try to take a little bit more chances in that aspect. So I probably should have done that a little bit earlier. Um, there there's a lot of advice I probably should still take now that I don't. Um, but, like what? Um, um, take more chances um, in terms of my current working situation or just other financial endeavors as well. Um, that would probably serve me well, but I, I play it safe pretty often.
0: Where can people get in touch with you if they would like? So let's say... You're, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Do you have a Facebook page, a website? Where can people find you?
1: Right. I don't have a website. I just um, mooch off of Kenny Veneer a lot. Oh, um, perfect.
0: Yeah, he's, yeah, that's a great person to mooch off of.
1: So I'll do that. I, I do have a Twitter that I'll use professionally pretty often, mostly just me sharing a bunch of stuff I like. Um, but if you engage with me, I'll always be willing to have a conversation. I also use Facebook um, more personally, so don't be too, you know, sad if you friend me and then you see a bunch of pictures of me tagged with my nephews or niece. Like, well,
0: that's what Facebook's for, to show pictures of your kids, your nephews, your nieces, and your pets, right?
1: Yeah, you'll see a bunch of that from me. But, but again, I will always engage with people willing to talk. Um, so I'll, I'll do a lot of personal interaction like that.
0: Okay, so what's your Twitter handle so people can look you up?
1: That's a great question. I believe it's JM, your, and that's E-U-R-E.
0: J-M JM is a Mary? Yes. Okay. All right. And we'll have everything, just so people know, we'll have links to physiological.com. That's Kenny Veneer's blog. We'll have links to this and links to the Mercier paper that you referenced earlier. So we'll have all of that up on the show notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com for this episode. Um, so, Jason, thanks so much. You have definitely opened my eyes to some ways that I think I need to change a little bit more. So thank you very much. (laughs)
1: That was great being on. Thanks.
0: All right. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.